1973 was the best of times. You see, immediately after Unleavened Bread, my wife and I got married. So it had to be a good time. And then immediately after Pentecost, we got sent to Africa, to what was then Rhodesia, today Zimbabwe. And as a young man, I had to take care of everything from the Okavanga Swamp in Botswana to the Indian Ocean. Half of Botswana, half of Mozambique, all of Rhodesia, and uh, a little to the north of that, Malawi. It was a stupendous time. People were being baptized. We were having lots of go-tos, although we didn't call them go-tos in those days. But uh, I can remember my first trip to Malawi. We literally trebled the size of the church. It went from one member to three as a result of one baptizing visit. And it was encouraging to see that growth and that development. Just before trumpets, Mr. Raymond McNear and family came to visit us on their way to South Africa for the Feast of Tabernacles. And they spent a couple of days with us. I may have been there for trumpets in uh, what was then Salisbury. And we spent, we had some very good time together. But he mentioned how that a prominent minister that I knew had uh, left the church in Pasadena, had left uh, the employer of the church, had left the church altogether. And basically the uh, ideas that this man had became the package that led to the apostasy in in the early 1990s. But he left at that particular time with a particular repast that I came to hear of when he, he made the comment, you can't prove to me that tithing is required under the new covenant. So that was his beef at that point in time. He had many other beefs as well. But he was uh, very much into what is part of a new covenant, etc., So my purpose today is not to speak about tithing directly. Although you might say a subsidiary point of this sermon will, God willing, leave you with no doubt as to whether tithing is applicable under the new covenant. But I want to address the subject of a new covenant and its application. Because that man, like so many others, made a fundamental mistake in his understanding of the old and the new covenants. He certainly made many other mistakes in his understanding of God's word. But the one I want to focus on today is his understanding of the old and the new covenant. It's not an uncommon misunderstanding. Dr. Meredith has written articles in Tomorrow's World pointing out that the Ten Commandments were not just simply part of the Old Covenant. Because, you see, people like to be like Thomas Jefferson. And they're going to create a new covenant to their liking. It will only include the things that are convenient for them. Okay, so the Ten Commandments will get rid of those. Tithing will get rid of that. And so forth. And so Dr. Meredith had to address it. And uh, I know very much that uh, Mr. Apartian presented a sermon some, some years back, 14 years ago, entitled, Are We Living Under the Old of a New Covenant? Addressing some of the issues that arise from time to time uh, on the relationship of the old and the new covenants. Mr. Ames, about four years ago, gave a sermon entitled Pioneers of the New Covenant. Now today, you're going to be get involved in the sermon a little as well because the ushers have got a piece of paper for you to fill in to uh, make part of your notes, as the case may be. If you want to create one of your own, that's fine. But basically, we have enough copies for the adults in the audience. It is not intended for the children to play tic-tac-toe upon. Okay, we will fill it in and and we will have, God willing, some understanding of uh, this particular subject. We are here today because of the faithfulness of a particular man, 
known as Herbert W. Armstrong. A remarkable individual in many ways. But you see, our father called him because in part of the background as well as his abilities. Mr. Armstrong had grown up as a Quaker. Uh, We don't have much to do with Quakers. The Society of Friends, as they're called. They may not be familiar to most of us, but the distinguishing feature of the Quakers was the fact that they didn't get involved in dogma and doctrine as the world refers to doctrine. Creedal ideas. They were described or were described as being a pietistic group, which means they were concerned about piety, about behavior. And so they became known as a society of friends when they were established in the 18th century. We refer to them as Quakers today. It was used originally a pejorative term. It was a put-down of them. Uh, George Fox, their founder, was before the courts in England in the 18th century because of what they believed. And he told the judge that he and the people with him were supposed to quake at the word of God. And so the judge, in an offhanded response, said, Oh, so you're Quakers, are you? And that's where the term comes from. Okay, so put down from the judge. But the name stuck. And the important thing about the Quakers is that they believed in their relationship with other people. It's interesting, Mr. Armstrong growing up in a Quaker background meant that he did not have a lot of the religious baggage that someone coming from, say, an Episcopalian or a Catholic or a Presbyterian or other mainline uh, religious groups would have had. And so as Mr. Armstrong grew and developed, so much of his writing was challenging the religious ideas that existed in the world. He was able to read God's word from a fresh perspective uncluttered by the ideas of the denominations of this world. And so he would challenge accepted beliefs of the churches and uh, so forth. And of course he had to be challenged himself in the first instance. And he wondered how all of these things could be wrong. But having studied, he came to realize, yes, everyone is wrong. People don't follow the Bible in any way whatsoever. So he, having been challenged, came to prove the existence of God, of the Sabbath. The Father was able to use him to challenge other beliefs that people held to. So Mr. Armstrong wrote booklets on subjects such as the tongues question. Why? Because it was all a rage at that point. Or how often should we partake of the Lord's Supper? And there was a whole series of booklets, just what do you mean? And you can put the appropriate word thereafter. What do you mean conversion? What do you mean predestination? What do you mean salvation? Etc. He went from one subject to another, challenged people to understand from God's word what God's word really said about a particular subject. And so very important for us to understand. So today we will look at, if I can take a line from Mr. Armstrong, Just what do you mean, the Old and New Covenants? Mr. Apatian, in his sermon on whether you lived under the Old or the New Covenant, dwelt for a period of time on the aspect of the use of the word Old and New. However, it's something we have added to the Old Testament, to the New Testament. So we have this perception We use the term New Testament. Why do we use the word new? Well, because it supersedes the old. The old is outmoded, the new is better, so to speak. Mr. Apatian made the point in his sermon, and I certainly have made it many times, the incredible aspect that what we call the early church, the apostolic church, all received the promise of salvation without the New Testament. Because they didn't have a book that we could 
classify as being the New Testament until the middle of the 60s. And that still lacked all of the writings of John. So you might say we're looking at the end of the first century. By the time we have the collection of the 27 books, today we call the New Testament. And how many people had been called, received God's Holy Spirit, lived their lives, died, and been buried awaiting the hope of a resurrection before that became a reality? Very important point. The time when Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 16, where he said, all doctrine is established by Scripture. The New Testament was not a reality. Paul was still writing his last epistle to Timothy at that point. Over the years, I've come across... I can remember in primary school, elementary school to you, primary school to me as I remember it, we used to have religious instruction. If you did well, what were you given? A copy of the New Testament and Psalms. Because the Psalms was all that was valid in the Old Testament. And sometimes it got a little better, it was the Psalms and Proverbs. And uh, so on. So we're going to look at these terms that we use today. People think of a new covenant and immediately think of it being a replacement of the old covenant. Else, why would it be called the new covenant? Why would it be called the new covenant? Well, you have a little sheet of paper. Anyone else need another sheet of paper other than to play tic-tac-toe? Okay. So you've got a a sheet of paper there with nine little cells on them. And we're going to fill it in over the course of the sermon. I would like to uh, spend a little bit of time. You'll learn a little bit of Greek as a result of this today. Maybe you even learn a little bit of Hebrew. But in the second cell on the left-hand side, I would like you to put the English word new. And in the two cells beside it, we're going to add two Greek words. Because, you see, the English word new in the English Bible is translated from two totally different Greek words. Oh, okay. So what do you mean, new? The first word I want you to put in the uh, column to write of the word new is the word neos, N-E-O-S from which we get neoconservatism or neoclassical architecture. It's a word you'll recognize. It means new. But it means new in a particular way. It means new in terms of time. A better, perhaps a better term for it would be fresh. All right? So you have a new cake. It had better be a Neos cake, right? It better be fresh. Or we talk about a baby, a new baby, a Neos baby. Maria and Derek are about to have a Neos baby, right? They already have a baby. But when the new one comes... He won't be the new baby any longer. He probably doesn't like being called baby at the present time. Now, I know some people use it in a uh, uh, different manner in terms of a, a term of endearment of their wife, etc. But we're talking about new in terms of a new baby. In the Greek language, we would be talking about a neos baby because it's very time-dependent. Babies grow up. My mother recently sent me a photograph of myself a long, long time ago. I don't know where she found it, but uh, she found it and scanned it and sent it to me. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was a neos of the family at that point in time. So, uh, 
we have of this term neos. It deals with something that is very time-sensitive. The idea of freshness conveys it very adequately. The second word I want you to put in the third column, to the right, is a word that is going to create a few challenges for you in terms of spelling. It's kainos, K-A-I-N-O-S. Kainos. And you'll never mix up the word neos and kainos because they have totally different usages. The concept of kainos is something that is unused. Then we can say it's new. Let me give you a good example. When our son was approaching the age of learning to drive a car, we thought, well, if he's going to learn to drive a car, he's going to have to learn to fix a car too. And it so happened that a young student in Big Sandy was selling a very nice little white MGB. And we thought that would be an ideal car for our son to learn to use a spanner and a screwdriver and a few other things of that nature and understand how mechanical things worked. Because it's an English car. And MGBs constantly needed repairing. So it was going to keep them well occupied. And of course, yeah, it wasn't long before it needs a new starter motor. And so we right away to this uh, dealer in Kansas City, I believe it was, who stocked parts for all of these English cars. And we wanted a new starter motor for it. And it eventually arrived all wrapped in beautiful uh, oiled paper and so forth, as it had left the factory. But when it had left the factory, it may have left the production line in Lucas Industries in England before our car was ever assembled. And here we are 13 years later replacing it with a new starter motor. It wasn't a fresh starter motor, it may have been 20 years of age, but it was new in the fact that it was unused. And unlike the English language, the Greek differentiates between those two concepts. And it doesn't mix them. It doesn't want you to mix them. And so the second Greek word that is translated as new in the English is kainos. The concept of being unused as opposed to fresh. If you'd like to go to the top line, above neos, you could write time-related or time-dependent. And above kainos, there is no time relationship. No sense of time in any way whatsoever. Now, to give you a good example of this, at the Passover, we read John chapter 13, verse 34, where Christ said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Special music today. God so loved the world. And Jesus Christ was telling the disciples, you're going to love one another as I have loved you. You're going to learn a little bit about godly love. He says it's a new commandment. How many people have gone to their grave thinking that Jesus Christ created an 11th commandment? Sorry, folks. John didn't use the word neos. He used kainos. Because this was an unused commandment on the part of the disciples. Well, read about it. Go to Luke's Gospel. What are they doing? They're fighting with one another at the Passover about who's going to be the, the chief amongst them. Right? There's com competition. I'm better than you are. And when Zebedee's wife comes along to ask for a special place in the kingdom for John and James, they all get full of righteous indignation. Who do you think you are getting ears? You go through the life of the apostles. They didn't really love one another in the way in which Christ loved them.
And, of course, that's very clearly the case. They could get one another's throats, seek to get the better of one another very quickly. They had to come to understand that. The attitude that they displayed on the day of Pentecost in 31, a being of one accord, was a remarkable transformation of the fractious 11. They were changed because now they were using something that never used before. And so here in John 13, Christ makes this point. Now, it's rather interesting. There is a scripture in the Gospels that helps us see these two words being used together. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And in verse 14, we find the disciples of John coming to Jesus asking, why don't your disciples fast? Why are we and the Pharisees the only ones who fast? And so Jesus answered them. Coming down to verse 17, he said, Nor do men put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, the wineskins are ruined. But they put unused wine? No. They put neos wine into kynos wineskins. They put fresh wine into unused wineskins. If you do rather, if you use a used wineskin, it's lost all its elasticity as the wine is fermenting and uh, developing. It stretches that wineskin so much that if it has no elasticity, it'll just rupture. And it'll be lost. What a waste. And so the idea was, it's not a neos wineskin that's important. It's not the freshness of a wineskin. It's the fact that the skin has never been used as a wineskin before. That's the important thing for it. So Jesus was saying they don't put... Uh, uh, neos wine into old wineskins, else the wineskins will break. They put neos or fresh wine into kynos or unused wineskins, and everything works out beautifully. And for the next few weeks, you can have some wine when it's ready. So the aspect is clearly established in the Bible as to the difference between the two words that are translated as new. We read the English language and so easily gloss over it and not understand what is being said. I'd like to change tack for a moment and look at another aspect of Scripture, and we'll come back to this in very shortly. But I'd like you to go back to Matthew chapter 1, and verse 1, some of you may have heard this before in Bible study, but let me rehearse it for you again. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, a chapter that most of us skip over. Who wants to read all these names? You do so to your own hurt, because those names mean something. All scripture was inspired by God and is profitable for instruction, correction, teaching, so that you and I can be fully equipped to accomplish God's service. And so that includes the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, right? And so we have in Matthew 1 and verse 1, the, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if I presented an article to uh, Mr. Smith for one of the church's publications with an introduction like that, it would probably be sent back with, please rewrite the introduction, because we don't write that way these days. But yet that was the way in which Matthew was inspired to write. We, we uh, very different world. We uh, have here a very heavily laden verse that's so easily glossed over. 
This is the 14th time in scripture that this comment about the book of genealogy is referenced. 13 of uh, 12 of the previous times are in the book of uh, Genesis, I believe, one in the book of Numbers, and here we have the 14th one here. And then, of course, you get 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from, so, from David to the captivity, and 14 from the captivity to the birth of Jesus Christ. So Matthew is doing something. Matthew is being inspired to do something here in a very constructive way. Now, we can understand Jesus Christ being defined as being the son of David. We understand all of the prophecies uh, that were about him being the son of David and about his role as the Messiah. We can understand that. But then Matthew goes on and defines both David and the Christ in terms of Abraham. Why would they do that? So Jesus Christ is firstly defined as being the son of David, who is then defined by being a son of Abraham. It's worthwhile asking ourselves, why is Christ defined in terms of David and Abraham? Abraham is a very important person in the New Testament. He's called the father of the faithful. He's called the friend of God. What else needs to be said about the man? Those little phrases say everything, don't they? They're profound phrases. We would love to have the eternal or the Father say that about us, right? I hope so. Incredible compliments to us. So uh, he's given uh, commendations that most of us would be very envious of. To be envisaged and appreciated by the Father in the way in which Abraham is referred to would be an accolade to strive for. No question of it. Matthew provides quite a bit of information relating to Abraham as well. If we were to turn to Matthew chapter 3, we find John the Baptist using the role of Abraham in speaking to the people of Judea about repentance and baptism. And of course, he, in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 3, focused his attention upon the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism. And he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from a wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And as though that wasn't enough, he said, don't think that you can claim Abraham as your father and you've got it all okay with God. Because he said, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Then he tells them, he said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So what is John saying about Abraham? He's saying two things. People felt they had it made because they were descendant of Abraham. They felt that physical descent from Abraham was all that really mattered as far as God was concerned. And John was dispelling that notion very quickly and very forcefully. But what else was he saying about Abraham? He was also telling them that Abraham was known by his fruits. And if you want to be a child of Abraham, you have to produce fruit just as Abraham produced fruit. Without question. Abraham brought forth godly fruit. And if you're going to claim to be a child of Abraham, you have to bring forth godly fruit as well, just like Abraham. Or else you cut down, ground up, Cast into the fire, whatever it is. We find John, uh, Jesus himself reiterating this point in Matthew chapter 7. And you can make a note of that in uh, Matthew 7 verses 15 through uh, uh, 20. 
But Jesus ends that point by saying, by their fruits, you will know them. That's the evidence of where a person is at. So this responsibility of producing fruit becomes of very great importance. Turn over another chapter into Matthew chapter 8. And Jesus himself gives a scenario involving Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what's the scenario? They're in the kingdom of God. We have in verse 5 this centurion coming to Jesus in Capernaum and asking him to heal his servant. And Jesus Christ said, I'll come and heal him. And the man said, no, you don't need, you don't need to come. You just need to say a word. That's all that's needed. Just say, be healed. That's all that's required. And of course, Jesus Christ said, verse 10, Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Jesus, of course, was talking about the resurrection. People are going to come and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. He's not talking about Abraham being resurrected to a physical resurrection. He's talking about Abraham being resurrected in a spiritual resurrection, the first resurrection as we would call it. And as a result of that being part of a government of God, together with his son Isaac and Jacob. And he carried on in verse 12, he said, The sons of a kingdom, those who thought they had it made, will be cast into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this aspect of a relationship with Abraham is very, very important in terms of Matthew's gospel, in terms of what the Father is revealing to us. What is he building upon? I think Mr. Weston uh, alluded to this in a sermon he gave recently. The fact that uh, the importance of what is said in Genesis chapter 18, where the eternal and two angels came to Abraham prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the early part of Genesis 18, Abraham and Sarah promised a son whose name would be called Laughter. So you've learned a little Hebrew this afternoon. Anyone who you meet who's called Isaac, try and be polite in the way in which you laugh. But that's what the name means. And of course, most people today would not use it because it means laughter. They think it's just a nice biblical name, right? But in Hebrew, laughter is Isaac. It's Ak. Okay. Having eaten with Abraham and Sarah, The eternal and the angels went on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verse 17, a very important point. The eternal said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? I want Abraham to understand these things. Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all of the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household unto him that they keep the way of the eternal to do righteousness and justice that the eternal may bring to Abraham what he has spoken in him. So here he was commending Abraham because he said a child of Abraham is one who can be instructed in the way of the eternal. To do righteousness and justice so that the eternal can bring upon Abraham what he has spoken to him. True children of Abraham keep the way of the eternal. They do righteousness and justice. And we'll do a little more Hebrew now. Because that expression, righteousness and justice, is in fact, you might say, shorthand for the spirit of God's law. The Hebrew word for righteousness, tzedakah, and for justice is mishpat. And those words are used together 
and they're used singularly. But there are some 66 times when they're used together throughout the scriptures in a remarkable way. And they always are talking about, you might say, the totality of God's way of life. Very important. You might say they encompass the whole spirit of God's law. That's why Abraham's going to have a place in the kingdom of God. Because he understood the spirit of God's law and uh, was able to live by it. Abraham's children are to be defined as those who love God's way of life and who would live the spirit of God's way of life. It's a very powerful statement to be made about Abraham. It may surprise you that the reason Matthew 1.1 talks about Jesus Christ, David, and Abraham is because they are the only individuals in Scripture to whom that standard applies. Abraham was going to teach that way of life to his children. David lived that way of life. And the Messiah is going to live that way of life. Nobody else, no matter how well they lived in accordance with the word of God, doesn't matter whether it was Moses or any of the prophets, none of them are ever accorded that statement of Scripture. We find, if you make a note of 2 Samuel 8, verse 15, 2 Samuel 8 and verse 15, and as well a companion scripture in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles uh, 18, verse 14, they say exactly the same thing. David reigned over all Israel, and David administered Sadaka and Mishpat to all his people. It was the standard of his rule. Just like Abraham was going to teach those people. Solomon, the son of David, was told that he had to rule that particular way. He did for a period of time and then fell away. It's never an accolade given to Solomon. The only other person beside Abraham and David is the Messiah. And you can see that in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, it talks about unto us a son is given of verse 6. The government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, which is a mouthful and not necessarily the way the Hebrew should be translated, but that's for another day. But I'd like you to focus on verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with Sadaka and Mishpat. Now, I use the Hebrew terms because the translators are always changing the terms. They're never consistent. But really, the same thing is being used as is being used in Genesis 18, verse 19. Righteousness and justice is the hallmark of the Son of God, the Messiah. David and Abraham, the father of the faithful, was characterized by it as well. So it says here he's going to establish his government with righteousness and justice. And as I said, the translators confuse it from time to time for us. So Matthew chapter 1 is talking about the true genealogy that God, our father, is concerned about. The true descendants of Abraham. The people who will bring forth spiritual fruit in their lives as Abraham did, as David did, as the Messiah has done. Abraham was known by his fruits and as a result of that he will have a leading role in the kingdom of God. We can look up to him as a human being, a former human being in a profound way because of his righteousness and justice. It's part of a spiritual identity. If you and I have righteousness and justice in our lives, 
we can identify ourselves as being a child of Abraham. And, of course, that requires that I produce fruit in my life. So Abraham has a part in the kingdom of God. Anyone disagree with that? And I ask you, what covenant was Abraham part of? It certainly wasn't the old covenant. Because the old covenant didn't come for another 430 years. And while you're thinking about Abraham, cast your mind back to Noah, Enoch, Abel. You might like to even stop and consider what covenant would Adam and Eve have been under if they had eaten of the tree of life? Okay? Now, the Bible in, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, talks about a new covenant. But it does so in a particular way. We're not talking about neos or kainos here because we're dealing with the Hebrew language, not the Greek. And the Hebrew doesn't have that nuance that the Greek language does. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Eternal, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It was going to be a new covenant because they already have one. They had entered into one at Mount Sinai. And so the idea of them having a new covenant is very good, very appropriate. They already had a previous covenant. But if we come to the way in which Paul uses this, the scripture in Hebrews chapter 8, we ought to ask ourselves, what word that you have on that paper did Paul use to be translated by the English word new? Was it neos or kainos? I want to ask for a show of hands. Let me speed it up by telling you. It's kainos. It's an unused covenant. It's something that has not been used by others. And so um, a very important point for us to bear in mind. The covenant that Paul is talking about is what he calls, or in the Greek is best described as being an unused covenant. Had not been used by people, apart from a very few that the eternal had called. Now let's come back to our sheet of paper. And in the third column of third row, in the left-hand column, you can write the word old, because we're looking at the old and new, right? Or new and old. And, surprise, surprise, in the Greek language, there are two words that are translated by the English word old. And both are represented in the New Testament. The first word is a word that you may have some relationship with. It is a word, paleos, P-A-L-A-I-O-S. may need another A in there somewhere. But we derive the term paleo from it. And how many of you have been on a paleo diet recently? Right? Do you know why it's called a paleo diet? Because no one's used it for a long, long time. It was shown to be ineffective. Except when people take it up as a fad. It's a paleo. A more common use of it is in terms of writing styles. We talk about paleo-Hebrew. It is a form of Hebrew writing that Ezra brought to an end and that the Samaritans carried on afterwards. Ezra replaced the letters of the Hebrew language with the form of letters used in Aramaic. didn't change the language, just change the way in which the letters appeared on the page. And if we had PowerPoint today, I could show you a difference between modern Hebrew or biblical Hebrew and paleo-Hebrew. And very quickly, very fast to be able to identify it because paleo looks like chicken scratch. Probably when you're writing with a chisel on a piece of rock, 
It's appropriate. It is called Paleo-Hebrew because it's no longer used. It's obsolete. Okay? We find that uh, used in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Paul is talking about Jesus Christ. It said in verse 8, he said to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So righteousness, this idea of righteousness that we saw with Abraham, is a hallmark of God's kingdom. And it said, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. So you love righteousness and you might say justice. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companion. Verse 10, and you, eternal, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hand. They will perish, but you will remain. They will grow paleo. They will come to an end. They have a physical limited life. They will grow old or they'll grow paleo like a garment and they will be changed. But you will not fail. So Paul uses this aspect of old in a particular way, showing the corruptibility of some things. They don't last forever. The other word that is used is a word that you will recognize, or you'll recognize words that are derived from it, because the word is archaeos, A-R-C-H-A-E-O-S. A-I-O-U-S. And immediately most of you will think archaic. Correct. But we don't use it properly today. Archaic, archaeos is old. But it's not just old aspect that is being considered. It is the foundational aspect that is being considered. Here is something that is foundational. Marriage is a chaos. It is foundational to a society. We find it first in Genesis chapter 2. Right? So it is something that is foundational to human society. The Bible that you have on your lap is a chaos. It's old. But it's old not just because it's been around for a period of time. It is old because it is foundational. It is our chaos. So now you have your chart filled in. Apart from the top left-hand corner. Top left-hand corner. Okay, when we talk of the old and new, which words are we using? Well, you should have guessed the new already. It's kainos. So it's that second right-hand cell that speaks of the new. When we talk of the Old Covenant, Paul used the word paleos. This is something that has a limited life. It doesn't last forever. So the Greek word kainos is used by Jesus when he talked to the disciples at the Passover. So, so Paul, we find in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13, quoting from Jeremiah 31 verse 31, he said, and he says, a new, a kainos covenant. He has made the first obsolete or paleos. For what is becoming paleos and growing old is ready to vanish away. It has a limited life. So the two words that Paul uses is the right-hand word for new and the left-hand word for old. Now, just to add to that, to add a little complexion to this, Paul talks about this new covenant, which people fail to realize what the Greek word really means. We have a new covenant. But new covenant isn't the only term that Paul uses to describe what we call the new covenant. 
If you don't believe me, turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. Hebrews 13 and verse 20. He said, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the good shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work. So Paul describes an everlasting covenant. Once again, a covenant that is not time-bound. Some translators use the word eternal. But basically, Paul is paraphrasing Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 26, which I will leave you to read. And you'll find there are three elements from Ezekiel 37, verse 26, that Paul introduces here. The idea of a shepherd, an everlasting covenant, and of being a covenant of peace. All three elements are common to both Hebrews 13, verse 20, and Ezekiel 37, verse 26. It's interesting as well that Jeremiah also talks about an everlasting covenant. And you can make a note of Jeremiah 31, verse 3. Or maybe you'd like Isaiah. Isaiah 61, verse 8. We don't have time to look at all these. And certainly please read Genesis 17, verse 7. Because what was the nature of the covenant? that the eternal entered into with Abraham. It was an everlasting covenant. It wasn't a here today, gone tomorrow covenant. It was an everlasting covenant. It was a covenant that was not time constrained in any way whatsoever. So the eternal told Abraham, I will establish my covenant between you and your descendants after you and their generation for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants afterwards. And so we have here, we have that aspect of an everlasting covenant, even appearing in the book of Genesis. Does our father have multiple everlasting covenants? I don't think that's what the Bible is talking about. I think there's a sense of continuity. Okay, we can talk about many covenants in the Bible. Covenant with David, marriage covenant. But ultimately, if one follows them far enough, they all coalesce together in the kingdom of God. So uh, the everlasting covenant, I believe, that the eternal offer to Abraham is exactly the same thing that Paul speaks to us about and is ultimately promised for Israel and the nations of the age to come. If I might paraphrase Mr. Ames' comments from his sermon, Pioneers of the Covenant, Abraham was a pioneer of the covenant, just like you and I are to be pioneers of the covenant in a very powerful way. So what lessons can we draw from this? As I mentioned earlier on, when commentators talk about the old covenant and the new covenant, they tried to define the, ter- the new in terms of the old. What am I going to carry over from the old into the new? And what can I discard? That's the way in which it works. Our friend back in Pasadena in 1973 was very much of that opinion, as have been many other individuals subsequently. They don't contemplate that Abraham was part of that eternal covenant with relationship with the eternal, as were Enoch, Ape, Noah, and Abel. What was the covenant that was really, ultimately speaking, to be offered to humanity? It was offered to one or two, and then the eternal, such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Enoch, Noah, and Abel. Then the eternal provided an old covenant, an interim covenant for a period of 1,500 years. Then he offered that eternal covenant to people again after the sacrifice of his son. And the church of which you and I are part of is founded upon that. We are the pioneers of this new covenant.
just as Abraham was beforehand. But let's turn things around a little and let's straighten things out. The old covenant is defined in terms of the new covenant. Something was in the old covenant because it already had an equal in the eternal covenant. You don't choose what you want from the old covenant to be in the new covenant. It's the other way around. What was in the old covenant had a place already in the eternal covenant. It turns the world, the theological world, upside down. Do you want me to prove it to you? Why was a priesthood in the old covenant? Because there was a Melchizedek priesthood before it. An eternal Melchizedek priesthood. So therefore the old covenant had to have a priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood. Why did Israel have to have a tabernacle? Because the eternal covenant has a tabernacle at God's throne. Understand? Very important. So why were the sacrifices? Because there is an altar of offering in God's tabernacle. Read Hebrews 8 and 9. There was a Passover that was slain from the foundation of the world. Right? First Peter chapter 1, verse 19 and 21. People, one thing people want to get rid of from the old covenant is the death penalty. Read Hebrews chapter 10. If you died under the old covenant... You have the hope of a resurrection. If you die under the new covenant, if you die under the punishment of the new covenant, there is no more hope. It is the third resurrection. It is the second death. Period. So there was a death penalty in the old covenant because there is a death penalty for failing to heed the eternal covenant. You don't like the terms of it? Fine. Then there is a result for you. The death penalty forever. And Paul sets that out very, very clearly in Hebrews chapter 10. So what ended up in the old covenant only ended up there because the Father and the Word had established it already as part of the covenant relationship they were going to have. As I said, the man left the church in 1973 saying you can't prove you have to tithe under the new covenant. Okay, so where do you first learn about tithing? Genesis 14, Melchizedek and Abraham, or Abram, as he then was. Tithing had already been established long before the new covenant, before the old covenant was established as part of the accepted and expected relationship of a subject person to the covenant, to their God. And you can go and you can see the way in which even Jacob understood a bit about tithing and so forth. And so where do we end? Well, where do we learn about the Sabbath? Genesis chapter 2, right? And Mr. Westing gave a sermon at the beginning of the year, going through the Ten Commandments and clean and unclean foods, and the Sabbath day and so on, how these all existed prior to the, the time of uh, the establishment of the Old Covenant. Absolutely the case. Sabbath was part of the Old Covenant because it was already part of the Eternal Covenant. Intended to be that way. What about the Holy Days? Another thing people like to get rid of out of the Old Covenant. They love to leave that out. Now, Mr. Weston, in that same sermon, said that the holy days, there was no explicit statement about keeping the holy days prior to Sinai. And that is absolutely correct. But there are lots of hints pointing to the holy days, starting in Genesis chapter 1. 
Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And I've heard sermons given by ministers before today on the seasons of our lives. Summer, autumn, or summer, summer, autumn, winter, spring. Yeah, you're all, all very appropriate. But the problem was they used this verse for it. And sorry, folks, it's not talking about that. It's not talking about the four seasons of the year because the word that is translated as seasons here is the same word used in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 2, for the assemblies of the eternal. In other words, festivals, period. So the festivals are established in Genesis chapter 1 as part of the eternal's recreation of the earth. We referenced Abraham, or Abram and Malachi, uh, Melchizedek rather, Genesis chapter 14. I'm looking forward to asking Melchizedek one of these days. Because you see, what did Melchizedek, the priest, bring forth? He brought out bread and wine to meet Abram. Now there's a problem. Mr. Weston is absolutely correct. Because the word for bread is rechem. Not matzah. It's a generic word for bread. It's not unleavened bread that is referenced here. But why would he be bringing bread and wine? That's a question I have in the back of my mind. What about Genesis chapter 15? Where the eternal tells Abraham that his descendants are going to be 430 years in captivity. And then you go across to Exodus chapter 12, and it tells us that the very day that Israel came out of Egypt was the culmination of about 430 years. What does that make the event in Genesis 15? That was the original night to be much observed. Right? 430 years previously. Genesis chapter 19. We have the angels going to Lot in Sodom. And what does he serve them? Matzah. And you all know what matzah is, right? You've all crunched into it before today. And you keep it for a particular time of the year. Unleavened bread. So we have these, these you might say, teasers throughout Genesis looking at the aspect of the holy days without ever becoming explicit, but just teasing us about it. And so we we have these elements. So I challenge you, brethren, to ask yourselves, just what do you mean by the new covenant? From what I can appreciate, very few people have, very few people outside of God's church, have an appreciation of, an appropriate appreciation of the new covenant at all. They see it as being freedom to do whatever they wish, whenever they want, however they want, without any instruction or direction by our Father. But in reality, the material that is in the old covenant is only there because our Father and the Word had already established those elements as part of his eternal covenant relationship with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, or Noah, Adam, or Noah, Abel, and, and Enoch. In many ways, it would be appropriate to call it the eternal covenant rather than the new covenant. Because we don't understand the word new the way the Greeks did. It is a spiritual covenant. It's a covenant whereby the law of God is internalized, whereby we will keep the way of the eternal, as the eternal commanded Abraham in Genesis 18, verse 19. We will keep the way of the eternal to do righteousness and justice, to bring about the culmination of God's plan for his whole creation. 
That's what means to be part of the eternal covenant. What it means to be part of the new covenant. It's a covenant whereby we can be part of his kingdom so that we can join those we have mentioned and those others that Paul lists in Hebrews chapter 11 who by faith were able to enter that kingdom. Not yet, but the promise is made there for them. What was that faith associated with? It was associated with living the way of life that the Eternal and the Father had established for them to do. And so as the Eternal said to Abraham, I know him, that he will command his children to observe my ways, to keep my covenant. He set an example for us. Abraham was a human being, just like you and me, with all of the human foibles and shortcomings that we are very much aware of. But yet with the aid of God's Holy Spirit, he was able to overcome those. He was able to develop the fruit that his father looked for. And as a result of that, he has a place in the kingdom. Now that doesn't take away from Jesus Christ, because how did he learn those things? Who taught him? Melchizedek, we understand to be the one who became Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ was the one who taught him about bringing forth fruits and so forth. He listened to that friend. So ultimately speaking, all of the glory goes back to Jesus Christ and to the Father. But the Bible does present Abraham in that particular role as a physical father. But only if we produce the fruit, the spiritual DNA that comes through having God's Holy Spirit in our lives. So consider the aspect. Just what do you mean, new covenant? It's something a lot more profound than most Christians and most theologians have ever given thought to. It is something that you and I are privileged to have a part in so that we can rule with Jesus Christ.